0: you're listening to the dc real estate podcast the podcast where we focus exclusively on all things local to the dmv area local investors local knowledge
1: local experts our journey starts now Hey, everyone. Welcome back to this week's episode of the DC Real Estate Podcast. My name is Russell Brazil. I am an associate broker with the District Invest Group of Arlo Real Estate. I'm Jack Sidon. I am owner of DMV Flippers and also a real estate salesperson
0: with the District Invest Group.
2: And I'm Sarah also a salesperson with the District Invest Group. Wow,
0: that's kind of funny <laughs> that we're all on the same podcast. Yeah, <laughs> what a weird coincidence. What a weird coincidence.
1: So we're talking this week about market conditions. Market conditions are out of control. They've been out of control for two years, but it seems to be just spiraling downward or or upward if you're a seller, right? So it depends what, what side of this coin that you're on. But Russell, when there's no more houses for sale, like zero houses, what are you going to do for a living? Um, no, we're getting there. We're getting close. I'm going to, that. I'm going to have to pump up more co- podcast content when that <laughs> happens so I can get uh sponsors, right? Yeah. So uh, Sarah, you just had a, a situation the other day where tell us about that.
2: Uh, yeah. Well, it's hard for any agent right now, but I, sky wanted to see this property in Baltimore and I was like, all right, this is great. Like I'll schedule a showing when and made a showing request. And literally like 20 minutes later, the property had gone on market that morning, 20 minutes later. Your showing has been canceled uh, due to the the property going under contract. I was like, that has to be a record.
0: Was it like significantly underpriced or was it like just the market's that hot?
2: You know, I hate to say this, but it was like the perfect property for that client. Mm-hmm. Like it would have been a great burr. That's what he wants to do. It was right by his house. He's in Towson. It was right around there. I look at the numbers. I was like, this is great. Like we'll go today. Surely we'll be one of the first people there, but got snatched up
1: yeah i had one on um friday the client emailed me and they're they're buying from out of the country and so they're like can you go see this property and i looked at the showings and they were um what i thought was blocked off till monday but i don't think it was blocked off i just think every slot had been filled and so i was like all right i emailed them back i was like i scheduled an appointment for monday that was the first available and maybe two hours later i got the notification from showing time that they that it was canceled because the property was now under contract. And I think that was the first day it was on market too.
0: I have a client who's at a pretty healthy price point. And I think like the mid sixes in Montgomery County and he has criteria about bedrooms and he wants four bedrooms and a good school district and nothing that should be unreasonable. And I've run out of houses to show him, not only from Dubai, but like there aren't houses for me to take him to showings anymore. Um, it's just, it's that brutal. And it's not even, I mean, prices are really high. But like there should be some neighborhoods that like, would make sense that are in the fives, but there's just whole neighborhoods that have literally zero houses. So it's it's the prices aren't even the biggest problem. It's if someone wants to be in this area and this school district and walking distance to this, there's just nothing.
1: Yeah. The, I mean, pre COVID we were already dealing with a extremely low amount of inventory, say two months, one month and COVID immediately cut it in half. But now we're two years into COVID and the inventory level, as measured by the number of units for sale, has just continued to drop and drop and drop. And I say number of units for sale because now measuring inventory in the amount of months that we have is going to be distorted. So in one month of inventory is what we say it would take for every house to market to sell in one month. So if there's Say there's five houses selling per month, and there's five houses on the market. That's one month of inventory. But as inventory continues to drop, how we measure months of inventory gets distorted there's because, no right? Because now the new stat will be in a neighborhood with zero houses, zero houses <laughs> is one month of inventory, right? right? right. So, as opposed to three years ago, it could have been 25 in a particular neighborhood. So measuring it in months of inventory now makes very little sense, and we should be talking about the, the amount of units per sale. And do you think, because this is one of my theories, as interest
0: rates rise, the inventory is going to get worse because you're going to have rate lock?
1: So I think we're going to uh, have a few problems. with. I think it will have a negative impact on inventory even further because, yeah, so – If a seller in a house, let's say they're a six hundred thousand dollar house they're living in, they're thinking about upgrading and they have a sub three. They have a two point five percent interest rate. Now not only they're looking at upgrading, and maybe so they're in a six hundred thousand dollar house, and maybe a couple years ago they were thinking about upgrading to an eight hundred thousand dollar house. Well, now not only is that eight hundred thousand dollar house nine hundred thousand dollars, but now they're not looking at two and a half percent. They're looking at, you know, four percent, four and a quarter percent. So the cost compared to what they're used to paying have exploded so much that they're just gonna stay in their home. Put an additional and whatever. Yeah, they'll upgrade their home before they move now, and that's gonna put further pressure, downward pressure on inventory. So we should probably find a different business. Is that what you're saying? Yeah. I mean, I I don't know how we're going to make a living here over the next decade.
2: (laughs) I think that what you just said. Definitely at the beginning of the pandemic, people were still, they're like, oh, house prices are going up. Let me sell my house. I'll buy a bigger, better house. And now the prices have compressed to a point, gotten so crazy that they're like, wait, I can't afford a nicer house. Like I'm not going to sell anymore. And it's just creating, like you said, with neighborhoods with zero. We were just talking about it. Canton has literally like two listings right now and they're reasonably priced, but I don't know, you know, they're going really fast. People aren't doing inspections. I don't know what the deal is, but.
1: Yeah, I just read a stat the other day that there are only 6 million homes for sale in the country. And to put that in perspective, there's about uh, 2 million residential agents in the country. So there's only three houses for sale for for every agent. That sounds Um, actually very accurate. Based on- and so obviously I, each of us needs to sell more than three houses to make a living. Um, so yeah, it's a, it's a tough market for agents out there and it's a tough market for buyers. It's an unbelievable market though, if you are a seller and if you're planning on maybe downgrading instead of upgrading, right? So if you're downgrading, you messle people out with the money that you've gotten from selling your house. Um, and maybe you got to pay more, but it's not as hard as the up going to a to an upgrade. And one thing that I've been fascinated by, uh, I've
0: been watching the Eastern Shore market for years, and what you have is not even actually downgrading, but like, and this is happening all over the country, right? You know, you have people who they sell their house in D.C. for 1.5. Well, they can go buy whatever they want. And what you see is, so it spreads out too, right? You have these markets, and you're seeing this even areas like Frederick. You just see the ex-urban areas get bit up because when you're coming from an urban area, an extra fifteen hundred grand doesn't matter, and so you're seeing this price spread out all over the country. Into, I mean, I think we're seeing markets in the Midwest. Baltimore has actually benefited from this of people selling and then moving to a different area and you know bidding up the existing residents.
1: Yeah, it's a, it's almost as if printing trillions of dollars of money in a very short period of time has some sort of correlation to rising prices. Mm-hmm. It's it's, a, it's unbelievable. Really?
0: And, and a lack of housing inventory, yeah. too. I mean, I mean we, it, it, we there's also a number of short, of short
1: of yeah. just not enough houses for people.
2: What, you're saying printing money is a bad thing?
1: I'm not saying it's bad. <laughs> I own real estate, it's treated. But uh, there's one property I'd like to talk about um, in American University Park. Okay. Um, this property was listed at $1.85 million and closed at $2.65 $800,000 over list. Um and surprisingly, this is the second uh only the second highest escalation I've seen in the last year, and this was eight hundred thousand over list.
2: It's not even I mean it's nice, but did you see the kitchen? <laughs> it's nice. I actually
1: did not look at the interior of at the pictures. Interior? No.
2: It's like a nice house, but eight hundred thousand you're just like, wow, I wonder who bought it. That's that's gotta be a record, right?
1: Um it's not a record. The record was last year in Chevy Chase for a house that went $1 million over list.
2: Oh, my gosh.
1: Um, I, I got to wonder, wh- when you're a buyer's agent and you're telling your client how much to escalate, <laughs> how do you say, like, I think we got to go a million over here?
0: <laughs> was it, were these? I don't know, AU Park. Was this underpriced or, or just that's mm, just the market? No.
1: I did not actually check it against the comps to better understand if it was underpriced or not. Um <laughs> I I guess it was by definition.
2: You have to wonder, though, was it the agent saying that or did the buyers, they were just so obsessed with it that, like, I want to be a fly on the wall. Where they like, we're just going for broke. We want it. And the agent's like, whoa, 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 (laughs) (laughs) whoa. They're like, we're just going to buy it. We don't care what it costs. Like a dream scenario for an agent. But you have to wonder. I
1: hope my client. Do you have any clients like that? I wish. (laughs) (laughs) And the one last year that was in Chevy Chase, I. I. I can't remember exactly, but I think it was like a four million dollar property that went for five million. That I understand because if you're a buyer shopping in the four million dollar range, there's no substantial difference to five million, right? Yeah. Um, but the difference between one point eight and two point six million, those are very different price points for someone that's in the mid to high one million range. Yeah. Um, and once so- you get to the ultra luxury, those people. Money becomes irrelevant.
0: Right. I'm not saying, to be clear, like 2.5 isn't a ton of money, but it's not generally the type of person who's sitting on you know, tens of millions of dollars necessarily.
1: No, it, it's probably too often, right, a couple that both are have very, very strong incomes, but they are not independently wealthy. Right. They're not um, sitting on $30 million, $40 million. Right. right. And that's right. why I say the, the price difference from 1.8 to 2.6 is two different classes of buyers altogether. That's a significant upgrade. Um, I just can't imagine how someone desperate, how desperate someone was to make that leap. Well, I do think you have, and it's interesting when we talk about the market and when you think you have
0: some buyers who just get fed up and they're just like, get me a house, any house. And I do wonder whether that does, if and when inventory ever subsides. I do think, like, there, I do not think there was a bubble at all, but I do wonder if some of the like extreme prices that we've seen in the last few weeks could could be. You know, come down a very small percentage because there is just, I think, some desperation in the market. People
1: overbidding. There's nothing for sale, and yeah, but there's not going to be anything for sale for like ever, ever again. So
2: ever, forever, ever.
1: I just, uh, I just lost out on this one property, and um, this was in the Eckington neighborhood, and I was a hundred percent sure we had this property. So it was listed at eight hundred thousand, and granted, that is that's cheap. That's cheap for Eckington. Um, but we bid to 975 175000 over, thinking there's no chance it's going that high. And we were locking this thing up. Well, we came in third. <laughs> Oof. What did it go for? Um, I should look it up because I think it should probably should have closed by now. But, it, I mean, it had to have been at least $200,000 over. Um, Done? It was redone maybe, you know, 10 or 15 years ago. So, like, perfectly livable, clean you know, but not like brand new shiny or anything. Um, did have an, uh, I can't remember if it was an accessory dwelling unit in the basement or if it was a legal second unit, one or the other. So that, that's always attractive, but, um, to be bidding $200,000 over in, uh, you know, I hate to say million dollars is a moderately priced neighborhood, but a very, in DC, sure. it's a moderately sure. priced neighborhood. So like going 20, 25% over the list price in, uh, a normal neighborhood seems like insane. Am gonna, and, and and I've been bidding a hundred thousand over for a decade now, right? Like I I am not someone that is shy about making big bids and we're always used to a hundred thousand over in DC, but these two hundred thousand dollars over just seems um crazy. Am I gonna get multiples in my Brentwood flip? So that's gonna be a okay. very, very interesting case study because Brentwood is not a neighborhood that gets multiple offers. However, um, nothing for sale at seven twenty-five ish. This is a pretty attractive price point. So it's a pretty attractive price point in a neighborhood that you know there's not tons of people clamoring to get into. Um, so it will be very, very interesting to see how that goes. So you want to talk more about the Baltimore market?
2: I mean, sure. There's just no houses. <laughs> it's not much to talk about. I mean, I think we're having the same those same neighborhoods we talked about on the last podcast. Your Fell's Point, Federal Hill. Uh, I guess we included Locust Point in that now. Locust Point's a lot of like very bougie condos, like Silo Point's over there. That's cool. Uh, it's that's my awesome.
1: Silo Point is that's my cool. favorite building in both metro areas. Yeah, I, it's I think, awesome. I
2: think that uh, corner unit is still for sale. We've talked yeah. about the four point five million dollar one that has like a full turf field wrapping around it. It's Will you majoring. wrap me on
0: that if I want to make an offer?
2: <laughs> I think you like you said you have to show proof of fun. So oh, wow. pony up and we'll go see it. Yeah, <laughs> let me
0: pull out my measly bank statement and see
2: yeah. if that's good enough. Do you work. accept tears? <laughs> I love that. Love that unit, it's amazing. Um, but yeah, what was I talking about? Fell's point,
1: yeah, no, no houses for sure. No sale.
2: houses, yeah. And I think people are starting to the margins, obviously, of what people consider I won't use the word habitable, but like a very livable area of Baltimore is spreading out because people are wanting to get into you know these areas in some capacity, they're willing to go a block or two over, which it's, I think is the natural progression of things in general. Like, mm-hmm. I think that would be happen. Over the next 10 years, it's just happening at an accelerated rate because people are so desperate to get into homes.
0: And so what are the neighborhoods, you would say, are the next neighborhoods up?
2: Well, I don't think it's like a, necessarily a ch- change in the neighborhoods. It's just the borders of those neighborhoods are kind of pushing out. Like you see Canton pushing out into like Highland Town and Brewers Hill, and then you see Fells Point. Traditionally, you'd have the highest-priced homes right by the water, like in southern Fells Point, and you see that pushing north kind of towards Hopkins Hospital. Um Still downtown, not a lot of growth. Those mostly condos, anyway. We know how condos have gone in the last year. So, not much happening there. And then Fed Hill, just lots of redevelopment, condo conversions, et cetera, et cetera.
0: It kind of sounds like it's going through the same
1: thing DC went through a decade ago, but kind of. It's
2: just happening very fast. I think that's the main word here is fast.
1: Well, I think part of that probably too is, right? Some people getting um, priced out of the DC market. Seeing similar, you know, style of neighborhoods at significantly less prices, and as right, if if you were able to pay eight hundred thousand in Petworth or Eckington, and now you're at these neighborhoods are at the million dollar price point in very short periods of time, as opposed to you know, sort of gradually getting up there, and you're like, well, maybe I can look at Federal Hill for or 450 um or 5 and be it a huge baller at 5 in federal hill um
2: or s- if you spend the same 800 in federal hill you'd be a real baller you'd be the person we talked about last time with the crazy roof deck that ruins everybody else's yeah. views I have like a triple decker roof deck a slide <laughs> fire pole <laughs> you name lazy, it. lazy river Lazy river jungle gym <laughs>
1: and you know with the bw parkway um it, it's not you know, it's not a great commute to DC by any means, but if you're if you're only commuting a couple of days a week now, maybe Baltimore and Federal Hill and Fell's Point is you know attracting more of these buyers. Like, and a lot of these DC buyers might you know are more likely to be cash than a Baltimore buyer, um, and so they might be muscling people out, and that's pr- maybe why we're seeing sort of these big price jumps there. Um Do you think Sarah moving there as a trendsetter had any effect on the I, market? I, I do, I do. She yeah. she probably got.
2: Just look at the data. Actually, yeah. I was
0: going to say, I think since you moved there, it probably is up like, you know, I don't know, 20 percent. So you should tell yeah. people that
2: it's, I'm actually getting paid by Baltimore town city. government.
0: I mean, they do a lot of bri- they do a lot of bribes influencer. there. That's not yeah. a surprise.
2: <laughs> Baltimore influencer. <laughs> it's
0: horrible. But you should change your Instagram to Baltimore influencer. I'm sure it's taken, but
2: probably yeah. But no, Baltimore is great. People really love to make, fun, including myself, love to make fun of Baltimore, but. It's really cool, especially Canton, the neighborhoods we talk about. It's got that great like feel. DC similar, you know some parts of DC, but it's affordable. There's parking. There's room for growth.
1: Walkable, dog parks. Dog park, um, right? Great. So that's what your buyer in, in these neighborhoods is very often looking for is easy access to, to dog parks. I'm one of those people. I live across the street from a dog park, and I think this is going to sound extremely obvious, but like as
0: Baltimore gets nicer. Then it's a nicer place to live, right? Like I don't think Canton had quite the bar and restaurant scene even five, six years ago, and as it starts to gentrify, then the other—I mean, this is what happened in DC, right? These neighborhoods that people would never consider living in became cool, became hot. I mean, the idea that Columbia Heights—and then what you it have it small is.
1: businesses move in, chasing the higher income people that have and moved it's into like that area—a
0: a virtuous cycle. Because yep. yeah, I mean, some of the neighborhoods in DC you just can't imagine that they're now desirable.
2: Well, I think that's true of most secondary markets in America right now. Like you said, there's kind of this like anti-urban diaspora going on. People are moving to like Boise and Austin and all these different places. And now there's like the cool food cultures following people. You know, there's all breweries everywhere now in Canton, things like that, which before Baltimore would never been able to sustain more than like one. I think
0: they've always been able to sustain beer in, in Baltimore. Not
2: like crafty breweries, no, like artsy stuff. You know, Richmond, same thing. There's lots of the same type of stuff going. on Lots of breweries
1: Richmond. in Richmond too. I've gone down there and uh been to a bunch of them. Richmond's a pretty pretty cool city.
2: Mm-hmm. It them. didn't used to be like that.
1: No, no, it was a sleepy southern town. And you know, the people that I know that have moved to Richmond over the last decade are. People that are you know were my age range that just felt like DC was a little too expensive for them, um, and but it's interesting because they one of my friends moved down to Richmond and they they also made way less money there, so it wasn't they weren't it wasn't really particularly more affordable, uh, but there was the illusion that it was.
2: I mean, people are making their money online now, so that kind of gets thrown out the window now. I think.
1: Yeah, yeah so it's interesting because uh, I've got so many friends that have jobs where they're virtual and they always want to travel. And um, I'm like, I I have to be here to actually do my job. It's a physical job. You're the last remaining person who has to be yeah, tied to a specific location.
2: Yeah, who's going to tend to the three houses on the market? Yeah. Not Russell. Yeah. Have
0: you considered just becoming like a traveling realtor? <laughs> just so your houses, just get your license in all 50 States.
1: You know, uh, you might I, have to do that. I wonder what it would, what, what it would take to get licensed in every, all 50 States. Um, Most states, you actually have to be physically present in the state to take the exam. Um, Like, that's fine. Business expense. So, like, I've been meaning to fly back to Massachusetts to take the broker's exam there, um, which is stupid because the same company issues the tests are here as they are there. Obviously, there's a lot of complications. You'd have to find a sponsoring broker.
2: They want it. They want to know that you want it bad enough. You're willing to go. You should just get like an Airstream, just load you and your puppy dog up in the Airstream (laughs) and travel all 50 states.
0: It'd be good content. We can all go. We'll all get an RV and it'll be good content.
2: Okay. No, 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 no.
0: Can you, you, uh, I've often wondered this, can you like string together reciprocity? So you'd reciprocity with state and then find the reciprocity with the other state and string together all 50?
1: Yeah. So I I've have, considered that. I have like looked to see where that string can take you. So like for instance, Maryland is fully reciprocal with Pennsylvania and Oklahoma, rarely enough. Um, and then you could look at what states are reciprocal off of those. Um, and I've got four licenses currently. So it would be interesting to see if you could do it that way. It also would be hugely expensive um, paying licensing fees in every state. Most of the time, you're gonna to have to be a member of an association as well as uh, the MLS in each state. And there's eight eight hundred MLS systems. Um, so, like, if you just joined every MLS system, if they, I'm gonna guess and say a thousand a year. That's eight hundred thousand dollars in MLS subscriptions. Cool. You
2: Have to sell more than three houses. You have
1: to sell more than three houses, so not not a viable business strategy, I think. For uh, that is is the, the reason? just the money? It's not that you don't have time to travel in fifty states. Oh, that too. Do
2: you ever do deals in Massachusetts, or you just keep it just?
1: I you? do maybe one deal a year there. Um okay. j- Only on the listing side, can't show buyers anything. Uh, usually for like family or friends, and I've got I've got a nice system down where. Um. Uh, it's usually like three flights. I fly up for a consult, uh fly up for an open house and I fly up for closing. And actually the last couple times I didn't go to closing.
2: Okay. So you probably only do a certain price point to make up for that. Yeah, and or it's
1: like a Boston's a more expensive city than DC, so the the price points make it worth yeah. it to do it. Um and it's also like the excuse to go up and see family and friends. Uh, right. And it's only it's only like a $100 round trip flight and it's less than an hour flight. It's true. Yeah. And yeah, my sister's uh in Boston and her rent got jacked up
0: like 25%. Which I guess is not that much, but
1: I mean, that's a big price <laughs> think, jump.
2: No, but I mean like it's I think 25%. They, no, no, but
0: I think the national average is like 20, right? I think I read the national average yeah. is like 19 something.
1: Well, I think a lot of the big price jumps in rents are taking place not in the big major cities. It's, yeah. I think it's right so it's harder for I'm going to use too simple math here, right? It's harder to go from a f- $4,000 to a $5,000 rent, that's 25% than it is for, say, $1,000 rent to go to 1250 which is yeah. also 25%. Mm-hmm. Um, so I think a lot of the big percentage jumps are not necessarily in the cities. Um, in many cities, D.C., one of them, um, New York's another, um, Boston's another. The rents in the cities are actually sorted down while the suburbs surrounding them are experiencing you know big price jumps and actually i i'm seeing that in my own personal portfolio my rents in the suburbs are up you know very strongly and the cities are sort of you know kind of flat
0: i will say i was looking at rental comps in uh, canton yesterday baltimore's rents are really healthy like like a 3 bed is like over over 2500 right
2: Yeah, so employment, the major employment centers in Baltimore, I think, will always be steady, and therefore you'll always have steady renters. I mean, people work for at the hospitals, or they work for J.P. Morgan downtown. You know, there's, like, consistent, huge employers in the city.
1: I do feel like a lot of the rents in, like, Canton, Fells Point, Federal Hill have have come up a lot in the last five years. Um, They've experienced a lot of rent growth. Yeah. And it's... It's only surprising because they were flat for a decade before that. But you know what? It comes with the same theory. It's gentrifying people, right? People
0: who would have spent 2500 in D.C. doesn't buy you that much 2500 in Canton. I think it's – It it's, buys you a really nice house in Canton. So I think it's that same. I mean I was kind of thinking about buying a rental in Canton. But now like, as we have this conversation, it does kind of sound quite similar to um, the same type of stuff that we saw in D.C. a decade ago.
1: High rent growth, new stuff moving in. Yeah. Um Great you know, one thing
2: <laughs>
1: one thing worth mentioning um as we're sort of complaining about inventory, inventory inventory is one of the strategies we've been particularly um trying to pivot to um all three of us is trying to find our buyers off market properties, right? So right now, I don't know, Sarah's got half a dozen off market uh properties. She's found for sales, she's trying to match up her buyers to Same thing with Jack, you've got a number of off-market properties yep. trying to match your buyer's to an item as well. It's uh, a less stressful situation because we're not having to write, make an appointment to see it and it go into contract four hours later.
0: And honestly, I feel bad for a lot of my buyers. Like it kind of, it's sucks. disheartening. It yeah. sucks that they can't, you know, get what they want at, at, at healthy price points. I also like, we've talked about this before. Like there's something, I don't really think there's any solution to it, but like, I find it very hard to tell people, like, the price that you see on Redfin or Zillow isn't the price, right? Most people, they're shopping. They see a house at six. I mean, anything else you buy, at least before, you know, you go to the car dealership, right? Your car is $50,000. You go to the grocery store, your cereal is dollars you know, the this,
1: actual price listed has no correlation to what it actually sells and for, and you
0: feel bad telling people that, like this house is perfect for me, six hundred, I can afford. It's like no, it's actually six fifty, and, and that's a new, relatively. I mean, we've always had bidding wars, but this idea that no, that no matter what the price is, it's going to go fifty over list—that's
1: really new, and I do think there's some.
0: I don't some, know. There's still bad for the consumer. I feel
1: there's like. still some people that are. I think it's, it's always been the case. So, like, right, just twelve years ago, I was still bidding. 10 15 percent over to sure. try to get properties so i don't think it's that new and there are still people that are overpricing and their house does not sell for multiple offers um and so we sort of have like this it's kind of illustrated but there's sort of this wave that happens right so when the market gets hot like this sellers get greedy and then overprice and then their property sit um And then it sort of like flows back and forth. Um, We saw that a little bit over the summer. There were properties that sat a little bit once the market had cooled off in the summer. Yeah. Um, And we saw more overpricing in the summer too as sort of people expected month over month growth and they overpriced and it sat longer. It didn't mean they didn't sell, but they didn't get the prices that they think they were going to get. That's another thing we try to find. I try to look for my sellers uh, or buyers
0: at things that are generally on for at this point more than like a week generally implies there aren't gonna be multiple offers coming in um and then you're actually going to get a good deal but you can come in at least around West and feel like you got a good shot
2: yeah it's hard i feel like it's counterintuitive in customer service to push buy like to push your buyer in any way and be like okay if you want this we have to act now you know it feels wrong but it's like okay if they want a place you kind of have to yeah prop-
1: and let's for talk sure, about the sure, conditions sure. of which we have to buy these properties right because they are not Optimal, right? We're talking about no inspection, you know, pre-inspection, you know, the reality of the market is you're not winning an offer with a home inspection. Mm -hmm. You just aren't. And should you do a pre-inspection, make it, do an inspection before you make an offer. It's hard to say that you should, because what if you do five, 10 um, pre-inspections? We're talking about, you know, Five, six, seven, eight thousand dollars. We're going to be dropping if we're doing ten pre-inspections yeah. on ten different properties. Um, that is a huge waste of money. So, are you going to waste this money time and time and time again, where you may not be getting this property? Um, it's hard to tell people that, but the reality is, you're not getting a house without an inspection. Um, the reality is, you may have to waive your appraisal contingency or make make up part of it. And we had. Kevin on the podcast, um, I don't know, maybe a month ago and he made a very, very aggressive bid on this house. I think we talked about it being 125,000 over. He had no appraisal contingency and he was incredibly lucky. It appraised and And it probably shouldn't. have. Yeah. The comps did not suggest that there was no comps there to suggest that if we were only looking in the neighborhood, um, luckily the appraiser looked outside the neighborhood for other comps. Um, but I had another buyer, no appraisal contingency, um, and this one we didn't escalate that high because this was an Olney, which is not as hot of a market, and we were only, I think, fifteen thousand over a list. And the appraiser appraised it at list price and didn't go over. And it was actually comps to justify our contract price, um, but he the appraisal came in low, and my buyer had to make up part of the difference on it, and it wasn't a particular problem for this. Guy, But, you know, it always sucks when you have to do that. One strategy I think is possible
0: is tell people to look under their max budget and then save some cash for like, you know, I think we're all three pretty good at being able to tell, okay, is there a foundation problem? Is there something that, you know, even without a home inspection, it's catastrophic. But, you know, it's really hard without that inspection to know the situation of the HVAC or the hot water heater or – and so I think sometimes getting people to look below their max budget and then save some of that cash or the down payment for – potential repairs down the
1: road. Yeah, and That's always a good strategy, but now more than ever. There's actually an incredible stat this sort of leads into is 80% of home buyers experience a major unexpected repair in year one of ownership. So right, a home inspection tells you what to expect. Yeah. You're still going to have an unexpected major repair in the first year of ownership. Um, and I I think the study had defined that as like a repair that was at least $1,500. Um, right? owning houses costs money things yeah. break when you're a renter you don't have to worry about that but as an owner um, you're the one flipping that bill yeah I just finished my uh, tax return for my rental property and we spent about eight
0: grand and all eight grand was things that wouldn't have been caught in an inspection things that were working at the time and then stopped working we yep. have a new oven a new fridge, a new dishwasher which they were operational for the first three months then they yep. weren't the HVAC was working then it broke. Um the medicine cabinet was hanging properly and then it wasn't. All those things an inspection would have said at the time.
1: They were they, yep. they worked fine. And then they, they and let worked. me tell you, dishwashers. The I dishwasher. don't know what it is with dishwashers, but I it is the number one appliance I replace. I am sometimes replacing a dishwasher in the same unit two years after I've replaced one. I don't know what it is, but
2: as soon as they separate from the casing they're in, it's like similar to a drum in a washing machine yeah. or a dryer. As soon as they Separate even a little bit, they start clanging around. Things get knocked loose. There's also not that many dishwasher repair people as there are for other things. Same as elevator repair people.
0: It's actually funny. It
2: comes down to economics, people. It's actually really funny you say that.
0: My, I was going to get dishwasher repair, and there was like it's like four hundred dollars. I'm like, well, let's buy a new one. Buy a new one,
2: yeah. Because it's
0: like five hundred bucks for a dishwasher. Yeah, Yeah. I was like, well, maybe you
2: need to be spending more money on a better dishwasher that will cost more when you have to replace it because it's the same as every other dishwasher.
0: Do you think that's a good industry for us to get into when there's no more houses? Just washer repair. Maybe
1: because they uh they break
0: it
2: all the time. Elevator. Elevator repair people make a ton of money cuz there's like okay. 3 of them in the whole country.
1: Seriously, have you ever- a,
2: it's legit statistic.
1: <laughs> so you're having a wave home inspections mm-hmm. and we get it it sucks. Um you're often having to wave appraisal contingencies or make up a certain amount on them. Um and you're competing against, you know, you know, sometimes it's just a few offers, but sometimes it's 20, 25 other offers out there. Um, sometimes it's cash. Um, so if you're wanting to be serious about buying a house, you got to be waiving these contingencies. You got to be escalating high. You got to be escalating in large increments. And in, this doesn't necessarily guarantee you win it. So mention mentioned Kevin. I wrote this offer for Kevin last year or the year before where we escalated in $25,000 increments against second best. And so we ended up as the high offer by that $25,000 escalation. And they still took a lower, a $25,000 lower cash offer instead of taking ours, which I think 25000 is a lot of money to leave on the table. But uh, So even if you're escalating, if you're the high by a huge amount, that doesn't guarantee you're going to win the bids. And the one thing that Sarah said, like I had this client, and I felt really bad with pushing people up in
0: price point um, because, A, it's like a bad sales tactic. You don't want to tell people to spend more than they can afford. But the thing that is true and is advice I'd give to anyone, whether or not I was selling them a house, is like whatever the problems are now, they're going to be worse in a few months as interest rates keep rising. And you know, that's one of the things that I like to tell people is that like, look, whatever your affordability is now, it's just going to get – it's just going to erode over the next few months.
1: Yeah, I mean, and that's a great point because I've had this conversation with people where they don't want to get to a certain price point. And, you know, I do very openly tell them, I'm like, whatever your price point is, it's fine. Just understand the next one in this neighborhood. This is the comp for the next one. So the next one's going to be more money, right? So you don't want to get to, I'm just making up a number here. You don't want to get to 500000 in East Rockville. Well, the next one's 520. And again, that the one rate. after that's 530. Mm-hmm. The next one after that's 540. And your borrowing costs are going up. The interest rate now is four. The end of the year, it's going to be four and a half. Okay. Next year, it's going to be five, right? So, it, and, that's and that's not going to stop the prices th- from coming and that's up. that's thousands of
0: dollars a year, right? I mean, a uh, half percent interest rate on 500 is twenty five hundred dollars a year.
1: Yeah, I mean, it's a significant amount of money, Um so it, it, it's a shitty environment to be a buyer in. But you know what? Um, after you own it and you're watching these prices rise rise, and the interest rates rise, it's going to be sucking while you're buying it. But you're going to be extremely happy after you've owned it and then continue to see your wealth build as being an owner. And then seven, eight years when we go to sell it, if we sell it um, and your house is worth $100,000, $150,000, $200,000 know, a decade later. Um, you're going to, everyone always has the same inclination. I know it was hard to buy. I wish I had bought more. Buying a house is like going to a dentist. Is that, was that a good comparison?
0: Uh, maybe, maybe we don't want to put it that way, yeah. but that's kind of, it's like painful, but pa- painful, but, but you'll like, be glad you don't have cavities. You don't yeah. have.
2: Yeah. There's so many benefits to owning a house. And I think a lot of people, they, they, I, have you ever seen that like meme circulating of that guy crying in the shower and he's like, "When well, yes. you've been saving up for your twenty percent down payment on your two hundred thousand dollars house, is that the bias,
1: ha-
0: the Tobias meme from Rested Development." No no, the, no, no, no. It's similar,
2: but it's like, but now that house is seven hundred thousand dollars. It's like, well, I think a lot of buyers still, even we're in like an information age, obviously, still think you need a full twenty percent down to buy a property. Well, you're wrong. You need all cash, apparently. But, yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> but no, but there's still as many
1: ways. As, as little as 3% down. And you know what? I have one offers where I am 3% down, um, competing against the big guys. Uh, forming relationships with other agents is imperative um, normally, but it's definitely imperative in this market. I've gotten the opportunity from agents I have relationships with. They get two offers. They're like, oh, I've closed deals with Russell before. He's easy to work with. He's going to get this closing. And this other offer who's higher comes from this agent who always makes things difficult. Their clients opt out of contracts. Um, So I I have been leveraging relationships to get more deals closed during this, um, which is imperative. But anyways, we're going to wrap up because me and Sarah actually have to go to a home inspection after we just said you can't get a home inspection in this market. Here's the key on this inspection. We've already closed on this property, and we're doing it for informational purposes to understand what we need to repair over the next year at the property um cuz again this was a property who couldn't couldn't win with a home inspection contingency but we're still going to do one after the sale of the property. Next week we're going to be back with Natalie Collett. I don't know how to say her last name Coladish. Um I know that's wrong. She's going to be angry I said it wrong cuz everyone fucks up her name but we'll see you next week.
0: Thanks for listening to the DC Real Estate Podcast. We hope you enjoyed the show. If you want to contact the hosts, reach out to them at info at dcrealestatepodcast.com. Don't forget to subscribe, rate, and review the show wherever you access your podcasts.